0: volume one chapter seventeen of Clayhanger by arnold bennett this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter seventeen end of a struggle it was not one of his official bilious attacks that darius had on the following day he only yielded himself up in the complete grand manner when nature absolutely compelled the goose had not formally beaten him but neither had he formerly beaten the goose. The battle was drawn, and this meant that Darius had a slight headache, a feeling of heavy disgust with the entire polity of the universe, and a disinclination for food. The first and third symptoms he hid as far as possible from pride. At breakfast he toyed with bacon from pride, hating bacon. The children knew from his eyes and his guilty gestures that he was not well, but they dared not refer to his condition. They were bound to pretend that the health of their father flourished in the highest perfection, and they were glad that things were no worse. On the other hand, Edwin had a sneezing cold which he could not conceal, and Darius inimicably inquired what foolishness he had committed to have brought this on himself. Edwin replied that he knew of no cause for it. A deliberate lie— He knew that he had contracted a chill while writing a letter to his father in an unwarmed attic, and had intensified the chill by going forth to post the letter without his overcoat in a raw evening mist. Obviously, however, he could not have stated the truth. He was uncomfortable at the breakfast-table, but, after the first few moments, less so than during the disturbed night he had feared to be. His father had neither eaten him, nor jumped down his throat, nor performed any of those unpleasant, miraculous feats which fathers usually do perform when infuriated by filial foolishness. The letter, therefore, had not been utterly disastrous. Sometimes a letter would ruin a breakfast, for Mr. Clayhanger, with no consideration for the success of meals, always opened his post before bite or sup. He had had the letter and still he was ready to talk to his son in the ordinary grim tone of a goose morrow, which was to the good. Edwin was now convinced that he had done well to write the letter. Part 2 But as the day passed, Edwin began to ask himself, Has he had the letter? There was no sign of the letter in his father's demeanour which, while not such as to make it credible that he ever had moods of positive gay roguishness, was almost tolerable, considering his headache and his nausea. Letters occasionally were lost in the post or delayed. Edwin thought it would be just his usual bad luck if that particular letter, that letter of all letters, should be lost. "'and the strange thing is that he could not prevent himself "'from hoping that it indeed was lost. "'He would prefer it to be lost rather than delayed. "'He felt that if the postman brought it by the afternoon delivery, "'while he and his father were in the shop together, "'he should drop down dead. "'The day continued to pass and did pass, "'and the shop was closed. "'He'll speak to me after supper,' said Edwin.' But Darius did not speak to him after supper. Darius put on his hat and overcoat and went out, saying no word except to advise the children to be getting to bed, all of them. As soon as he was gone, Edwin took a candle and returned to the shop. He was convinced now that the letter had not been delivered, but he wished to make conviction sure. He opened the desk. His letter was nearly the first document he saw. It looked affrighting, awful. He dared not read it to see whether its wording was fortunate or unfortunate. He departed, mystified. Upstairs in his bedroom he had a new copy of an English translation of Victor Hugo's Notre Dame, which had been ordered by lawyer Lawton, but would not be called for till the following week because lawyer Lawton only called once a fortnight. He had meant to read that book, with due precautions in bed. But he could not fix attention on it, impossible for him to follow a single paragraph. He extinguished the candle, then he heard his father come home. He thought that he scarcely slept all night. PART THREE The next morning, Tuesday, The girls, between whom and their whispering friend Miss Ingemel's something feminine was evidently afoot, left the breakfast table sooner than usual, not without stifled giggles. Upon occasion, Maggie would surprisingly meet Clara and Miss Ingemel's on their own plane. Since Sunday afternoon, she had shown no further interest in Edwin's important crisis. She seemed so far as he could judge to have fallen back into her customary state of busy apathy the man and the young man were alone together darius in his satisfaction of having been delivered so easily from the goose had taken an extra slice of bacon edwin's cold was now fully developed and maggie had told him to feed it i suppose you got that letter i wrote you father about me going in for architecture said edwin Then he blew his nose to hide his confusion. He was rather startled to hear himself saying those bold words. He thought that he was quite calm and in control of his impulses, but it was not so. His nerves were stretched to the utmost. Darius said nothing, but Edwin could see his face darkening, and his lower lip heavily falling. He glowered, though not at Edwin, With eyes fixed on the window, he glowered into vacancy. The pride went out of Edwin's heart. "'So you'd leave the printing,' muttered Darius when he'd finished masticating. He spoke in a menacing voice thick with ferocious emotion. "'Well,' said Edwin, quaking. He thought he had never seen his father so ominously intimidating.' He was terrorized as he looked at that ugly and dark countenance. He could not say any more. His voice left him. Thus his fear was physical as well as moral. He reflected, Well, I expected a row, but I didn't expect it would be as bad as this. And once more he was completely puzzled and baffled by the enigma of his father. Part 4 He did not hold the key, and even had he held it he was too young, too inexperienced to have used it. As with gathering passion the eyes of Darius assaulted the window-pane, Darius had a painful intense vision of that miracle, his own career. Edwin's grand misfortune was that he was blind to the miracle. Edwin had never seen the little boy in the Bastille, but Darius saw him always the infant who had begun life at a rope's end. Every hour of Darius's present existence was really an astounding marvel to Darius. He could not read the newspaper without thinking how wonderful it was that he should be able to read the newspaper. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful that he had three different suits of clothes, none of them with a single hole. It was wonderful that he had three children, all with complete outfits of good clothes. It was wonderful that he never had to think twice about buying coal, and that he could have more food than he needed. It was wonderful that he was not living in a two-roomed cottage. He never came into his house by the side entrance without feeling proud that the door gave on to a preliminary passage and not direct into a living room. He would never lose the idea that a lobby, however narrow, was the great distinguishing mark of wealth. It was wonderful that he had a piano, and that his girls could play it, and could sing. It was wonderful that he had paid twenty-eight shillings a term for his son's schooling, in addition to book money. Twenty-eight shillings a term, and once a penny a week was considered enough, and twopence generous. "'Through sheer, splendid, willful pride "'he had kept his son at school "'till the lad was sixteen, going on seventeen. Seventeen, not seven. "'He had had the sort of pride in his son "'that a man may have in an idle, elegant, "'and absurdly expensive woman. "'It even tickled him to hear his son called Master Edwin, "'and then Mr. Edwin, "'just as the fine, ceremonious manners "'of his sister-in-law, Mrs. Hamps, tickled him.' his marriage. With all its inevitable disillusions it had been wonderful, incredible. He looked back on it as a miracle. For he had married far above him and had proved equal to the enormously difficult situation. Never had he made a fool of himself. He often took keen pleasure in speculating upon the demeanour of his father, his mother, his little sister. Could they have seen him in his purple and in his grandeur? They were all dead, and those days were fading, fading, gone, with their unutterable, intolerable shame and sadness, intolerable even in memory. And his wife dead, too. All that remained was Mr. Shushian's. And then his business? Darius's pride in the achievement of his business was simply indescribable. If he had not built up that particular connection, he had built up another one whose sale had enabled him to buy it, and he was waxing yearly. His supremacy as a printer could not be challenged in Bursley. Steam, a double-windowed shop, a foreman to whom alone he paid thirty shillings a week, four other employees, not to mention a domestic servant. How had he done it? He did not know. Certainly he did not credit himself with brilliant faculties. He knew he was not brilliant. He knew that once or twice he had had luck, but he had the greatest confidence in his rough-hewing common sense. The large curves of his career were correctly drawn. His common sense, his slow shrewdness, had been richly justified by events. They had been pitted against foes, And look now at the little boy from the Bastille. Part 5 To Darius there was no business quite like his own. He admitted that there were businesses much bigger, but they lacked the miraculous quality that his own had. They were not sacred. His was, genuinely. Once, in his triumphant and vain early manhood, he had had a fancy for bulldogs, He had bred bulldogs. And one day he had sacrificed even that great delight at the call of his business. And now no one could guess that he knew the difference between a setter and a mastiff. It was this sacred business, perpetually adored at the secret altar in Darius's heart, this miraculous business, and not another, that Edwin wanted to abandon, with scarcely a word, just casually. True, Edwin had told him one night that he would like to be an architect, but Darius had attached no importance to the boyish remark. Darius had never even dreamed that Edwin would not go into the business. It would not have occurred to him to conceive such a possibility. And the boy had shown great aptitude. The boy had saved the printing office from disaster, and Darius had proved his satisfaction therein Not by words, certainly, but beyond mistaking in his general demeanour towards Edwin. And after all that, a letter, mind you, a letter, proposing with the most damnable insolent audacity that he should be an architect, because he would not be happy in the printing business. An architect? Why an architect, specially?' "'What in the name of God was there to attract in bricks and mortar?' "'He thought the boy had gone off his head for a space. "'He could not think of any other explanation. "'He had not allowed the letter to upset him. "'By his armour of thick callousness, "'he had protected the tender places in his soul from being wounded. "'He had not decided how to phrase his answer to Edwin. "'He had not even decided whether he would say anything at all.' whether it would not be more dignified and impressive to make no remark whatever to Edwin, to let him slowly perceive, by silence, what a lamentable error he had committed. And here was the boy, lightly, cheekily, talking at breakfast about going in for architecture. The armour of callousness was pierced. Darius felt the full force of the letter. And as he suffered, so he became terrible and tyrannic in his suffering. He meant to save his business, to put his business before anything. And he would have his own way. He would impose his will. And he would have treated argument as a final insult. All the heavy, obstinate, relentless force of his individuality was now channeled in one tremendous instinct. Part 6 Well what? he growled savagely as Edwin halted. In spite of his advanced age, Edwin began to cry. Yes, the tears came out of his eyes. And now you begin blubbing, said his father. You say naught for six months, and then you start writing letters, said his father. And what's made you settle on architecting, I'd like to be knowing, Darius went on. Edwin was not able to answer this question. He had never put it to himself, assuredly he could not, at the pistol's point explain why he wanted to be an architect. He did not know. He announced this truth ingenuously. I I don't know. I, I should think not, said his father. Do you think architecting will be any better than this? This meant printing. I I don't know. You don't know, you don't know, Darius repeated testily. His testiness was only like foam on the great wave of his resentment. "'Mr. Orgreave,' Edwin began. It was unfortunate, because Darius had had a difficulty with Mr. Orgreave, who was notoriously somewhat exacting in the matter of prices. "'Don't talk to me about Mr. Orgreave!' Darius almost shouted. Edwin didn't. He said to himself, "'I'm lost.' "'What's this business of mine for, if it isn't for you?' asked his father. "'Architecting. There's neither sense nor reason in it. "'Neither sense nor reason.' He rose and walked out. Edwin was now sobbing. In a moment his father returned and stood in the doorway. "'You've been doing well, I'll say that, and I've shown it. "'I was beginning to have hopes of you.' "'It was a great deal to say.' He departed." perhaps if i hadn't stopped his damned old machine from going through the floor he'd have let me off edwin muttered bitterly i've been too good that's what's the matter with me part seven he saw how fantastic was the whole structure of his hopes he wondered that he had ever conceived it even wildly possible that his father would consent to architecture as a career to ask it was to ask absurdly too much of fate He demolished with a violent and resentful impulse the structure of his hopes, stamped on it angrily. He was beaten. What could he do? He could do nothing against his father. He could no more change his father than the course of a river. He was beaten. He saw his case in its true light. Mrs. Nixon entered to clear the table. He turned away to hide his face and strode passionately off. Two hours elapsed before he appeared in the shop. Nobody asked for him, but Mrs. Nixon knew he was in the attic. At noon Maggie, with a peculiar look, told him that Auntie Hamps had called, and that he was to go and have dinner with her at one o'clock, and that his father consented. Obviously Maggie knew the facts of the day. He was perturbed at the prospect of the visit, but he was glad. He thought he could not have lived through a dinner at the same table as Clara he guessed that his auntie had been made aware of the situation and wished to talk to him part eight your father came to see me in such a state last night said auntie Hamps after she had dealt with his frightful cold edwin was astonished by the news then after all his father had been afraid after all perhaps he had yielded too soon if he had held out if he had not been a baby but it was too late The incident was now closed. Mrs. Hamps was kind, but unusually firm in her tone, which reached a sort of benevolent severity. "'Your father had such high hopes of you—has, I should say. He couldn't imagine what on earth possessed you to write such a letter, and I'm sure I can't. I hope you're sorry. If you'd seen your father last night you would be, I'm sure but look here auntie edwin defended himself sneezing and wiping his nose and he spoke of his desire surely he was entitled to ask to suggest a son could not be expected to be exactly like his father and so on no no she brushed all that aside she scarcely listened to it but think of the business and just think of your father's feelings edwin spoke no more He saw that she was absolutely incapable of putting herself in his place. He could not have explained her attitude by saying that she had the vast unconscious cruelty which always goes with a perfect lack of imagination, but this was the explanation. He left her saddened by the obvious conclusion that his auntie, whom he had always supported against his sisters, was part author of his undoing. She had undoubtedly much strengthened his father against him. He had a gleam of suspicion that his sisters had been right, and he wrong about Mrs. Hamp's. Wonderful, the cruel, ruthless insight of girls into some things. Part 9 Not till Saturday did the atmosphere of the clay Hanger household resume the normal, but earlier than that Edwin had already lost his resentment. It disappeared with his cold. He could not continue to bear ill-will. He accepted his destiny of immense disappointment. He shouldered it. You may call him weak, or you may call him strong. Maggie said nothing to him of the great affair. What could she have said?' and the affair was so great that even Clara did not dare to exercise upon it her peculiar faculties of ridicule. It abashed her by its magnitude. On Saturday Darius said to his son good-humouredly, "'Can't be trusted to pay the wages?' Edwin smiled. At one o'clock he went across the yard to the printing-office with a little bag of money." The younger apprentice was near the door scrubbing type with potash to cleanse it. The backs of his hands were horribly raw and bleeding with chaps, due to the frequent necessity of washing them in order to serve the machines, and the impossibility of drying them properly. Still winter was ending now, and he only worked eleven hours a day in an airy room, instead of nineteen hours in a cellar, like the little boy from the Bastille. He was a fortunate youth. The journeyman stood idle as often on Saturdays. The length of the journeyman's apron had been reduced by deliberate tearing during the week from three feet to about a foot, so imperious and sudden was the need for rags in the processes of printing. Big James was folding up his apron. They all saw that Edwin had the bag, and their faces relaxed. You're as good as the master now, Mr. Edwin, said Big James with a ceremonious politeness and a fine gesture when Edwin had finished paying? "'Am I?' he rejoined simply. "'Everybody knew of the great affair. Big James' words were his gentle intimation to Edwin that everyone knew the great affair was now settled. That night, for the first time, Edwin could read Notre Dame with understanding and pleasure. He plunged with soft joy into the river of the gigantic and formidable narrative— He reflected that, after all, the sources of happiness were not exhausted. End of chapter 17